Well, it's good to see all of you today. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 today. Um, before we look at today's verses, I just want to remind you of what we looked at last week in verses 12 to 16. So let me summarize that as quickly as I can. One of the first things we noted last week was pa- uh, Peter's pastoral tone again when he called the recipients of this letter beloved. It's important to hear Peter's tone throughout this, um, especially chapter 4, where we'll be again today, right? Peter's not like a drill sergeant barking at people saying, suck it up in the midst of your pain. He's their pastor. He's telling them he's loved them, he loves them. Um, and that's important. It's important for us to get that. I want to have Peter's tone today. Uh, he loves them very much. I want you to know, I don't speak for Chris or Dylan very often, but I feel pretty confident in this to say that the three of us love you guys very much as well. We need to hear this in Peter's tone, his love. He reminds them of the testing that they're going to continue to experience. In fact, we saw last week he calls it a fiery ordeal. And Peter understands suffering, right? Peter suffered um, and then saw Jesus suffer, saw the crucifixion. Peter is akin to suffering and Peter knows some suffering is coming, right? You think back to the Sea of Galilee where he met Jesus and was restored. Jesus told him, you're going to go where you don't want to go. People are going to stretch your hands out. Peter knew what was awaiting him, which was crucifixion, right? Imagine living each day trying to sleep at night knowing that's in your future. You talk about suffering every day. So Peter is not unfamiliar with suffering as he reminds the exiles uh, that this is a common experience. He tells them it's not strange. Um, he tells them, them it's not strange for you because you're a stranger and alien in the land you're in. And church, listen, so are we, right? We are strangers and aliens here in this land. So instead of trying to make America or Harrisburg our home uh, by turning it into what we desire, we need to recognize our, our alien status. Um, and we can do that. We can endure trials if we realize that we have an eternal home with our Father in heaven. Chris showed us in 1 Corinthians that suffering is common for believers. He showed us in 1 Thessalonians that fiery trials are a part of God's plan. And that's one reason Peter tells his listeners to rejoice, right? God is at work, he's saying to them. God is at work in these trials, so trust him and rejoice. And then we looked at in Acts chapter 5 where scripture, Scripture said they meaning the apostles let the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. This is a common experience. We also were reminded last week, shown that because of our union with Jesus, when we suffer, Jesus does as well. Remember the Damascus road, right? When the Lord came and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't doing anything to Jesus, but he was doing it to the church. Jesus felt that, right? We are one with him. We're reminded that when we suffer in Christ, we're sharing in the suffering he experienced, right? When an unbelieving world hated him, poured contempt upon him. And when we suffer, if we are in Christ, we know we have a great high priest who feels what we feel. So again, Peter tells us, rejoice, right? Rejoice when we're slandered for our faith. Rejoice when we're ignored at school or ignored at the office, when we're passed over for someone who's less competent than us when we're cut off from the so-called in crowd, we can rejoice. And then finally, we were shown that not all suffering is persecution, 
right? Sometimes we suffer because of our sin or our stupidity. Um, so we need, to make, we need to make sure that our suffering is a result of doing good and not from doing bad, right? So all that to say, suffering in the verses we saw last week, um, it's not a command, but it is an indicative, right? We're not told to pursue suffering, but we are told that it's a given. And so that's a little bit of a summary from last week. How ironic that I'm the one preaching to you today on suffering. Probably some of you are already thinking that. I have to suffer through Joe again. Um, I'm going to be honest with you right from the get-go that we may be in for a little bit longer ride than usual. I just want to be upfront about that. So instead of being upset by it, you should just see it as a way of me helping you learn how to suffer. Um, so, yeah, if you leave here a little later than normal and your, your words are, man, Joe killed us, you're welcome. I did my job today, right? Um, so let's take a look back in chapter 4. I want to read the whole section, 12 to 19, but we're going to focus in on, on 16, but 17 through 19. So in, in, starting in verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In today's text, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome from those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray together. Father God, we are grateful for today, for this time, as we sit with your word open in our laps. God, we pray that your spirit would fill this place, would fill our hearts. God, we need that. I need that. As we look at a text today, it's hard, it's difficult. Think about what we sang earlier. How right, but how easy it is for us to sing hallelujah for the cross. God, may we also be able to sing hallelujah for the pain that you bring into our lives for our good and for your glory. God, I cannot teach us how to do that. Only you can. So I pray that you would do that today, that you would speak to us, transform us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing I want to make note of, we're actually going to kind of go back into verse 16 a little bit. The thing I want to make note of, if you look in the word in verse 16, the word suffer, or that phrase will suffer, is not actually in the original language. It's been added in the English translation, okay? And so a more literal translation of verse 16 would say, but if you are as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. And it's, it's actually an important note, something we need to pick up on, because while suffering is explicit in the first 15 verses of chapter 4, 
we have a transition going on here in verse 16, right? The suffering in the first 15 verses is going to give way to the idea of glorifying God. So let him glorify that we read there. Let him glorify, that is an imperative. That is a command. That's a conditional statement, but it's a command, right? The condition is, if you are this, then you will do this. And that's what Peter is communicating to his listeners. That's what's being told to us today. All that's just a fancy way of saying that there's an expectation that true believers are going to glorify God even in the middle of pain and suffering. Okay? True believers will bring glory to God even in the midst of suffering. So this really dramatic transition is happening between verse 15 and 16, one from suffering, which is um, experienced as a Christian, transitions to glorification of God in our suffering. So in other words, suffering is allowed for the purpose of glorifying God. It's part of our sanctifying process. So when we suffer, again, we're told right here, we're to glorify God. The question is, what does that look like, right? It sounds strange to glorify God in our suffering. It sounds strange when somebody says, oh, as Peter does, you should rejoice in your suffering. What in the world does that look like? Well, it literally means we are to be glad. Now, listen, that's not in some weirdo masochistic way, right? We don't, we don't enjoy it, you know, because well, I just like to have pain and suffering inflicted on my life in some kind of weird way. That's not what he's getting at. We're not happy in that way. We're happy, we're glad, we rejoice because we're considered worthy to suffer, right? We're glad and we rejoice because the suffering in our life, you're going to see this over and over in just a little bit, the suffering in our life is there for a purification process. So maybe, maybe the best way for us to think about what it looks like to rejoice is to talk about what it doesn't look like. At least it's the easiest way for me to understand it. So we're told, right, best way to understand what it doesn't mean, we're told not to retaliate like an unbelieving world would. Remember James and John, when they, when they turned to Jesus and they said, hey, do you want us to ask God to, to rain fire down on these people and consume them? That's our response sometimes. God punished them. God do this. And Jesus looked, turned to him and said, what's wrong with you guys? No, that's not what I want. We're not called, we're not called to retaliate. Um, in fact, not only are we not told to retaliate, we're not even told to resent it, right? So don't retaliate. You experience, you experience pain and suffering. Don't retaliate. Don't resent it. We're told not to sulk like a child. I got to be honest with you, I'm pretty good at that one. Trouble comes into my life, I'm pretty good about just sitting by myself, being like a child in the corner with his thumb in his mouth, feeling bad for myself, right? Like a dog that's licking his wound. You want some specific examples of that? You'll have to ask my wife. She could probably tell them to you, but we aren't right? But we're told, no, that's not what it looks like to suffer in the right way. We don't sulk like a child. Listen, we're also not supposed to grin and bear it like some, like some stoic, right? Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to handle this. Um, the attitude of, I'm going to show you what a real man or how a real man deals with suffering, that approach is not what we're supposed to take either. And listen, church, you're not supposed to pretend like it's not painful either. I'm supposed to pretend like the suffering you're going through feels good because it doesn't, right? And the truth is, having faith in Jesus does not make it any less painful when it's going on. It doesn't. 
So the idea that somehow because I'm a follower, it's not going to be as bad, that's a lie. That's an absolute lie, okay? Rather, we're told rejoice and be glad. And at the end of the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Jesus told the disciples, right? In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here we go. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for they, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, we have this, this really dramatic transition going on from suffering as a reality to suffering for the glory of God. And then if you look at verse 17, it starts with the word for. And what we need to do is we need to read that word probably best as because. Right? So if we read it together with verse 16, it would read like this. But if you are as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name because it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And the language in these verses is really, really important for us to pin down. Right? The household of God that he's talking about here, that's the church, that's you and I, that's, that's, that's us. The redeemed people of God is who he is talking about where judgment will start. And that word household, household of God, it's just picking back up on the image of Christians as living stones that we read about back in chapter 2. So household is referring to us. Judgment here, right? It is time for judgment to begin. Don't read judgment for the household of God as condemnation. If you're reading it as condemnation, it's wrong. We need to understand that word for the household of God, for the redeemed people of God, as purification or for refinement. And that should not surprise you. It should not surprise any of us that are familiar with Scripture because judgment has always begun with the household of God. You think back to a couple of things. Think back to the Old Testament, right? Judgment came upon the house of Israel before it came upon the Babylonians. God judged his own people before he judged the nation of Babylon. Um, we see the same thing happen in Malachi. I think there's a slide on this. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Let me stop and say, that should sound oddly familiar. Right? A messenger who comes before the one that's coming, as in John the Baptist coming before the Lord. Right? But anyway, he goes on. He says, The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi household of God, and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. It's going to start, so Malachi is saying it's going to start with the household of God. And then in the very next chapter, in verse 1, he continues. It says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of armies, so that it will leave neither root nor branches. And so, so judgment here, right? For the household of God, it's where we're at. For the household of God, judgment is not condemnation. It's purification, right? It's being refined as you would refine metals um, for, for those outside the household of God, for evildoers, for those that do not obey the gospel. That's verse 1 of Malachi 4. What's coming for them? Judgment's coming from them. It's different from the judgment you're going to feel, right? Your judgment, I'm purifying you. I'm refining you, and it hurts, 
There's pain in it and it hurts, but it's not what's coming for them. Okay, so we've got household of God. We've got judgment. And then we have this phrase in this time or in this name. And there is so much going on in that little prepositional phrase in Greek. And all I'm going to say is this. I can spend 20 minutes or I can give you Cooper's phone number. And you need to call Cooper, right? Because I talked to him the other day for an hour. And after an hour, I said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> you just, I'm just going to tell people to call you. It's incredible all that's going on here. What I want to tell you in a very spark note version is that this, that demonstrative pronoun this, is meant to point you back to verses 13 and 14 in chapter 4, right? Put us in, in the sphere of, in association with Jesus. All of that's to say that if we are suffering in or because of Christ's name as one associated with him, then we're protected from the coming judgment that unbelievers are going to face, okay? So that's what's happening there. So we can read these verses then as this. If you are as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but let him, Christian, glorify God in Christ because it's time for purification to begin with the church. That's what Peter is telling his folks there, right? And hopefully it clears it up, makes a little more sense for us. The word time in verse 17, it's also really interesting, right? Because time there, it is time for judgment to begin in the household of Christ. Time is now, right? The time that is coming is the time that we, right now, are living in, right? This time was inaugural. Remember, Chris showed us a screen several weeks ago. Um, I don't know if you remember that little diagram he had. We are living we are living in the end times now. When Jesus came, the end of all things was near. Verse 7 of this chapter says, the end of all things is near. Or again, the time we are living in. And, and don't, it shouldn't surprise you, this is found all over the New Testament. In John chapter 9, Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world. Well, he came, right? When Jesus came, the time started. In Luke Chapter 2, verse 34, you, you remember this story when Joseph and Mary have Jesus in the temple and Simeon is there? And Simeon tells them this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And at the cross, that is exactly what took place, the fall and rise of many. For those who trust and obey, right? people who trust and obey, it's the rise. It's, it's still pain and suffering right, in the refinement but ultimately, it's the rise. For others who do not know Christ, who reject him, final judgment is coming. Question for this room, and which group are you in? Right? I mean, the cross, that's the dividing point in history. It is. The cross, everybody's on one of two roads. With Christ, separated from Christ. Question is, which one of those groups do you find yourself in? So now let's take a look at the second half of verse 17 and verse 18 with it. Peter goes on. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? First thing I want you to see, is this phrase, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. If you've got the New International Version, it says it is hard for the righteous to be saved. If you're reading the ESV, it says if the righteous is scarcely saved. 
I think the, NS, the, the New American Standard translates it best. It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What this doesn't mean is that it is difficult for God to achieve, achieve salvation. It is not difficult for God to save us, right? Um, it's not like God is scarcely or barely able to snatch us out of the fire at the last minute. That's not what's going on. These words instead are pointing us to the difficulty that we as followers have in remaining faithful to the end. And that's what Peter's warning against. He said it's with difficulty, it's with pain, it's with trials, it's with sufferings that the righteous will be saved. It's hard to remain faithful. Peter's issuing a warning here, and that's why Scripture tells us everywhere to endure and persevere, right? Remaining faithful to Christ, carefully, remaining faithful to Christ is so much more than just showing up for an occasional Bible study or worship service. I mean, it, it, it is. Obedience to the gospel and passiveness, those two things are not related in any way, right? And Peter's warning here. Saying it's a hard thing, it's a difficult thing to remain faithful because of what's going to go on in your life. And look, the truth of the matter is, if we went around this room, probably we could share a lot of stories about people whose difficulty has driven them back into the world, who's driven them away from the church, has driven them away from believers. Peter's warning, saying, be careful about this. Karen Jobes, one of the people Chris has been quoting quite often, she says, having perseverance means having faith and stamina instead of letting our sufferings drive us to pagan living and a rejection of the gospel. But church, that can happen. Our pains and our sufferings can drive us back into the world. They can. And we need to be really careful about that. That is a, that is a warning, right? It's a warning for the church. Don't let this happen. It's because Peter realized, Peter knows suffering is real. And listen, we are not immune to it. I think there's this idea that somehow because we're redeemed people, we're immune to sufferings and pain, and that is not true, right? When God saved you, he did not suspend the laws of, nat of nature for you. He didn't say you've been saved, therefore this isn't going to happen to you anymore. The truth of suffering, listen, the truth of suffering is just one reason that the prosperity gospel is a false gospel that leads people to hell. Because that idea of your best life now, it is not biblical. That's an absolute lie. That, oh, you do this and everything's going to be great, it's a lie. A true believer's life, Peter's telling us, it's hard, right? It's full of suffering. But he said it's totally worth it. That's it. It's totally worth it. And that's what he's going to show us next. So in his verses 17 and 18, Peter, what he's actually doing is he asks a couple of rhetorical questions, right? Questions for which he doesn't provide an answer. The first one he says, if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he asks, what will become of the godless man and sinner? And he doesn't give us an answer because he expected his, his audience, he expects us to be able to answer it and doing so find boldness to suffer, right? So when we provide the answer, we should be able to find boldness. So what's going on, according to John Piper, he says, we need to take this and turn it into a statement. And what we need to say is, if judgment begins first with us, then the outcome for those who don't obey will be blank. The question is, how do we fill in the blank? Take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
think it says first. If you're taking notes, it's actually second. In 2 Thessalonians, this is what we read. It says, There is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it is only right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Here we go, verse 8. In flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So how do we fill that in? Piper says, if judgment first begins with us, the outcome for those who do not obey will be I believe retribution is the appropriate word. That's what 2 Thessalonians is teaching us. Terrible, terrible for those who do not obey the gospel. Tom Schreiner says this about these verses. He says, Peter's arguing from the lesser to the greater and saying that even if those who are going to be saved are purified and judged by suffering, then the punishment for those who reject will surely be greater. So the answer to the second question, what happens to the godless man? He won't be saved. So he gives us those two questions. We're able to provide the answer, and I think that should cause two things to, to, to happen within us. First, the answers to those questions honestly should help us suffer because even though we have difficulty, we're assured here that being obedient to the gospel results in our salvation. Right? That's why, listen, that's why our suffering should be viewed as light and temporary. Now listen, I don't mean short and easy, right? Light and temporary does not mean short and easy. In fact, your pain and suffering, it may last your entire life. From the day you're born till the day the Lord calls you home, you may experience nothing but pain and suffering. But church, in the light of eternity and in the light of the, in light of the suffering that's awaiting these people who reject the gospel, then even a lifetime of suffering here is light and temporary. And that's a word worth remembering. As bad as it is and as hard as it is, in light of eternity and in light of eternity for those who don't believe, our suffering is very light and very temporary. The second thing I think those questions should do for us is it should stir in our heart what is awaiting these people who do not obey the gospel. I mean, the truth is those verses... Those verses should awaken pity in our hearts because of the, re the retribution that awaits people who do not belong to Christ. Verses should also warn us about trifling with God, right? Thinking that God is okay with the way we've decided to live our lives or thinking there's always going to be an opportunity to get things right with God. <laughs> now, those verses should remind us, teach us how important it is to be in a right relationship with God. And then take a, verse, take a look at verse 19. Peter concludes this, this part of the letter when he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That phrase, according to the will of God, is interesting, right? We could ask ourselves, does that mean that if we suffer, it's because of God's will? Or does it mean when we suffer, we should suffer according to God's will? Hope you see the difference between those two. And honestly, if we look at, in this, in this chapter 4, if we look at verse 17, 
sorry, chapter 3, verse 17, it says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for what is doing right. So according to that verse, we would say suffering is a result of God's will. But if we look in 4.15, where it says, Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler, we would say no, we're supposed to suffer according to God's will. Well, the truth of the matter is the answer is yes to both of those questions. Are we suffering because of God's will or do we suffer according to God's will? Again, the answer is yes to both. We suffer because of his will and it should be done in accordance with his will, right? Yep. Do it in a way that God approves. That's what Peter's telling us. Suffer in a way that God approves. What do you think that is? I'm not asking that like I want an answer. I just want you to think about it, right? Peter says, suffer in a way that God approves. Well, he's telling us we need to suffer in a way that trusts him. We have to suffer in a way that trusts God. And that sounds so simple with me standing here. You're going to see in a minute, that's not always so easy to do. But that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus endured the cross by entrusting himself to the Father. Look at on the screen, Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he died. The word, sit, or the word commit there means to entrust oneself. Right? How do we do this in a way that God approves? We entrust ourselves to him. And entrusting oneself means doing what's right. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He did what was right, and he glorified the Father. The other thing I think is really interesting in verse 19 is the phrase to a faithful creator. Because Peter could have just said, entrust their souls to God in doing what is right. And if that's what was there, we think, yeah, that makes sense. But he chose faithful creator. He didn't say God. So he's, he's up to something. He wants us to see something in here. And I think he wants us to see two things, right? By referring to God as faithful, he's reminding us that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And secondly, by referring to him as creator, he wants us to remember that God, the one to whom we entrust our souls, is all-powerful, and he has the power to save. So Peter says, entrust your soul to the one who keeps his promises and can save you. So the way we endure suffering is we entrust ourselves to our Father. You want to know what that looks like? Don't have to look any further than the life of Christ. And when we do that, when we do that, Right? When we endure sufferings by committing and trusting ourselves to our Father, Peter says, you will continue to keep being able to do good even to those who are hurting you. So, what do we conclude from all this? I heard a, I heard a preacher say one time, if people think you're about done because they're looking at the clock, or if they think you're about done because of the tone of your voice and then you tell them you have 10 more points, it will absolutely, absolutely knock them to the floor, okay? So pick yourself up off the floor because I do. I'm gonna go really quickly through these, but I think this is really important of what, what we can conclude from what we've read last week and this week concerning suffering, right? And what I want us to see is there are a lot of reasons we suffer as Christians. And one big reason for our suffering, for fiery trials, is because God is refining you. We've talked about that. Don't miss that. 
one of the reasons we suffer is because God is refining you and purifying you. Sinclair Ferguson, my favorite, Dylan was talking, he's not dead yet, but who do we listen to? I love listening to this guy. Sinclair Ferguson said, God will, God will have no other bride for his son except for one that is virgin pure by being refined in the fire so that everything not fitting for a Savior and Lord may be refined away. Man, what a great picture that is. That God is getting ready to think everything in your life that is not fitting to present to a Savior and to a Lord. Paul talks about the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. He says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Listen, church, one of the reasons you're suffering right now or you've suffered in the past, one of the reasons you're going to suffer is God is purifying you. God is refining you. God is making you in to what he wants to make you. And there are other reasons as well that God brings suffering to, to his household first, to us. One of those is that suffering, God uses it to develop perseverance and maturity in our lives. Look at what James, James says in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds. That's the same language we got in 1 Peter. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, allow perseverance to finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That was the case for Jesus, right? It was absolutely the case for Jesus. Hebrews 5, 8, 9 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Listen, if, surf, if suffering was a means for Jesus, the man, to mature, how much more do we need it? If he needed it, how much more do we? Don't, don't run from it. Right? Don't hide from it. We need it. God uses it to bring maturity, perseverance in our life. He also uses it to assure me and you of our sonship with him. Romans eight seventeen says, If children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if, right? Fellow heir with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Heirs of Christ are those who suffer with him. The assurance of sonship, is the experience of suffering and discipline. When I wrote this, I was thinking about this. I used to think that my purpose on life was to break in belts for my dad. I really did. My dad was a great guy. Man, he broke in a lot of belts with me. And, but, I, but I say it to say this, and, I, and I, was, I was thinking about this. I can remember this like it was yesterday. He would come home, and I'd be in a neighborhood or in my yard with my friends, and we were always doing something we shouldn't do. That tells you a lot about my life as a child. Um, and if, he, and if he saw us, he would always tell my friends, go home. Would come up, tell them to go home, and then he would whip me, right? I'm the one that got the spanking. And I didn't enjoy it. He could have given me an ice cream cone, I suppose, or money for throwing things at the neighbor's house. But he didn't. He spanked me. You know, there's, there's, there's discipline in that. There's pain in that. But you know the thing, you, you know the thing my dad was trying to teach me? You're mine. Those other yahoos, they don't belong to me. But you belong to me. And because you belong to me, here comes some discipline. Here comes my pain because I know what's best for you. And God does the same thing in our lives. He absolutely does. He allows it to come into our lives and it assures us of our sonship. I'm halfway done. 
not with the whole thing, with just the last list, okay? Um, I would tell you God also uses suffering to develop humility in us. We can read about that. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, right? About Paul receiving and suffering from a thorn in the flesh, right? That was there to show him that led him to humility. God uses suffering to deepen our insight into his own heart. Go home this afternoon and read Hosea. It's a short book. Go home and read Hosea and see the insight that Hosea is given into God's love for us by the sufferings he has to encounter with Gomer and the insight he sees into how much God loves us, right, as he deals with Homer. Go home and read that today and you'll see how God will deepen our insight into his heart through our sufferings. God uses it also to help others. I think, I think in adult Bible study, maybe a week or two ago, you had the story of Naaman. Somebody shake their head because you're a Bible study. All right, yeah, you had the story, you know the story of Naaman, right? And, and, he, and he's, he's got leprosy and this servant girl that they took for her home. Think about the suffering in that girl's life. Just taken from her parents. The suffering in her parents' life. If there was ever a kid when the master of the home showed up with leprosy, I won't say had the right, but would have been prone to say, yeah, I'm glad you got it. I hope you get it everywhere. I hope it kills you. I hope everybody you know catches it, right? That's where, I'm telling you, it's where my heart could easily go. And she does. You remember what she did from the Sunday school lesson? She says, let me, let me introduce you to a prophet of God. Let me introduce you to someone who can heal you. I'm telling you, God uses suffering in our life so that we can help others just as she helped Naaman. Or, golly, consider Job. I can see. I guarantee you, Job, after his ordeal, was so much better at helping other people than he was before he suffered it, and much better than his three friends, right? Who brought nothing to the table as far as help was concerned. As a side note, as a side note, I would say probably the best thing is well, definitely the best thing his three friends did. I think this is in chapter two of Job. It's when they show up, they see him from afar pour ashes on their head, and they sat in silence for seven days. That's the best thing they offered him, to sit in silence. Sometimes the best help we can give somebody when they're suffering is to sit with them in silence. It really is. But anyway, God uses suffering in our life to be able to help others. God also uses suffering to reveal to us what's really important to us and what we really love. Let me say it again. God uses suffering to reveal to us what we really love and what really means the most to us. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 3 says, Do not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Maybe what you're going through, God's trying to show you what it is you really love and what really means the most to you. And then finally, some of you can take a breath now. Finally, God uses suffering that we might display his glory. We've talked about that. Genesis 50, right? Remember what Joseph told his brothers? What you meant for evil, God, God meant for good. Here's a, here's a young man been subjected to suffering and fiery tribal trials. And yet he glorifies God by recognizing that the father was at work the whole time. God uses suffering in our lives, and he's going to use it. The Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 4 says, expect it. 
It's coming, and it's coming to the household of God first. And God uses it for a multi, uh, for multiple reasons. So let me finish with by saying this. Augustine, Augustine, I read one time, said trials come to prove us and improve us. And he's right, right? Trials come to improve us, or I'm sorry, trials come to prove us and improve us. And he's right, right? Trials prove we either belong to God or that we're citizens of Babylon. That's what we talked about earlier. Trials come into your life, they're going to prove one of two things. Which road are you on? This one's, this one's destined for the rise and fall of many. Which of those two groups are you in? Right. Where is your citizenship? citizenship? And so let me ask, what are trials and tests proving about you? Folks, I know we've been here a long time. Don't check out on me right now. I want you to really think about what trials and tests and sufferings are proving about you. Right? Are they improving you and refining you more into the image of the sun or do they have you running around Babylon looking for relief? I just can't take it anymore. I got to go find an answer. I got to go find something to bring an end to this suffering. And I'll tell you this, in these verses, in all of chapter four, Peter isn't just suggesting to his audience or to us that we try these words on to see how comfortable they are. He's not saying, hey, just give it, just give it a little try. Maybe it'll feel good the garments of suffering and they're not accessories that we get to put on or take off. How we suffer is important. And so in these verses we've been shown that how we suffer is a clear indication of the condition of your soul. Let me say it again. How we suffer is a clear indication of the condition of our soul. So again, does suffering in our lives look like what it's what we've talked about the last two weeks or not? And if not, we need to do something. We need to do something if it doesn't look like this. And maybe what you need to do is trust Jesus for your salvation and become obedient to his will. That was the application for last week. It's the application for this week. Put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you can't suffer this way because you don't know Christ. You're on a different road altogether. That may be it. And look, I, it's, I'm not going to come up to you and say, on a scale of one to 10, here's how you're suffering. Now you need to ask God to show you in your life. You need to be honest with yourself and ask yourself, what does this look like in my life? Right? Maybe, maybe what's going on is that you need to put your faith in Jesus and begin to follow him. And if you have questions, listen, if you have questions about what that means, like I said earlier, Man, don't trifle with God with this idea of, oh, I'll deal with that later. Oh, I'll talk to you. Now, talk to somebody today. Dylan's here. I'm here. This room is full of people who love the Lord, right, who would love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith in Christ and to follow him. And so you need to do that today. And perhaps, perhaps that's not it, but perhaps you're being convicted today because of the way you either have or are reacting to the suffering in your life. Maybe sitting here the last 45 minutes, you realize that, that you just run away from the very experiences God's bringing into your life to fashion you into the image of his son. That every time he brings one, you take off running from it to get as far away from it as you possibly can, right? And, and maybe, maybe after you hear this today, maybe you need to tell people in your life you're sorry for the way you've responded to the trials and sufferings in your life. 
Maybe the people in your home react to trials and sufferings the way they do because they've watched you react to trials and sufferings the way you do for way too long. And it doesn't look like anything here. Maybe we need to go to those people today, tell them we're sorry, and to repent, right? And so if God's convicting you one of those two ways, that's what I would encourage you to do, right? Repent today, begin glorifying God in your suffering. And, and lastly, maybe you sit here today and, and you just want to stand up and shout, I am up to my eyeballs in suffering. You don't need to tell me how to react to it because I can't even think about how to react to it because I'm just experiencing it. Every ounce of my being is pain and suffering right now. And if that's the case, man, I would encourage you to come to the altar. Come to the altar. Ask God to help you glorify him in the midst of your pain. Don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend like it's not there, but deal with it. Point is, there are lots of reasons to come to the altar. And if the Spirit is speaking to you, please don't put it off. Stand with me and we'll pray. God, we again thank you for your word and the truth of your word. God, as, as we prayed at the beginning, pray that your spirit would, would give us a biblical understanding of what it looks like to suffer. God, I'm, I want to, I don't want to speak of it glib fashion because God it is real and it hurts Jesus you know it hurts forgive us and we respond to it in a way that does not bring glory to you help us to seek you in the midst of our suffering to trust you to commit and trust ourselves to you. Doing so bring glory to you. Not so people look at us and say, man, they got it figured out. But God, so people people look at you. Say that is a God who saves. That is a God who rescues. That is a God that never leaves anyone in the midst of their pain and suffering. You are right there with us. May your spirit speak and move as only it can. We love you. That's just in Christ's name.